Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Y'all, the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast is officially entered in its first ever podcast awards. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would head over to podcastawards.com and sign up. Once registered, you can nominate the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast for both the Grammar Girl Education category and the Best Female Hosted podcast. Again, that's podcastawards.com and sign up to nominate the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast for the Education and Best Female Host categories. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Here at Team So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist, we are on a mission to reach as many people as possible and your nomination will help us with this goal. We have until the end of this month, that is July 2021, in order to get all the nominations in. So please go over and click the link today. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What do you call a restaurant at the bottom of the sea? A scuba diner. How does a school of fish keep up to date about sea life? They listen to the current news. My guest today is sustainability innovator, sargassum wrangling, coral reef saving, Jake Keel. In addition to these illustrious titles, Jake also holds the titles of Vice President of the Grupo Punta Cana Foundation and Vice President of Sustainability for Grupo Punta Cana. He is also a TEDx speaker and author of Waking the Sleeping Giant, Unlocking the Hidden Power of Business to Save Our Planet. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. Jake and I chat about what it really means to have a career in sustainability. Clue, it doesn't necessarily have to be working for a big nonprofit how the private sector can drive impactful environmental change, and how a little innovation goes a long way. Please enjoy. Jake Keel, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am really excited to chat with you today. Hello, how are you? Thanks for having me. Doing well, thank you. So you have a career in the hotel industry, which is really interesting, because it's not where you thought you were going to be at all. So when you're growing up, you thought you would be in more of a sustainable scientist realm. So could you kind of explain a little bit about what you wanted to be when you grew up and why and a little bit of how you digress to where you are now? Yeah, I started out with the idea of dedicating my life and my career to protecting the environment, you know, protecting nature whatever that meant, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't exactly know how that'll manifest itself, whether it be, you know, tying yourself to a tree or, you know, protesting or, or whatever it might be. Um, and so my vision of what I would be doing, you know, seemed to be 
leading me towards, oh, I will work for a not-for-profit, you know, one of these big successful not-for-profits that have these beautiful calendars with all these amazing animals that they're saving around the world. And that was kind of what I pictured. And then um, I got the opportunity to work in the private sector. And I had done some work in in not-for-profits and done even a little bit of work in the U.S. government, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service after college. And when I got to the private sector, I thought, what am I doing? Like, what can I possibly be doing in the private sector? I was supposed to be in one of these organizations protesting these developers that are ruining everything. Like this, you know, this is not a great move for me. And it turned (laughs) out um, as I got more experience in it and I became more and more convinced that uh, the private sector was exactly where I needed to be. And it was exactly where I could have the most impact. And it was, you know, fertile ground for making change, for really pushing uh, the environmental agenda onto a new group that at the time was, you know, not deeply engaged in some of these issues. And I now, you know, things have evolved and companies have become more sophisticated and understand sustainability. But when I got involved, you know, it was still relatively new uh, and, uh, the idea of uh, companies embracing an environmental philosophy was still pretty fresh. And so we um, that's what really drew me to the private sector and really has kept me here for, for most of my career. Yeah, I love that. I, it's something I've been thinking about, a lot about lately. I get here from listeners that they want to be a marine biologist, they want to make a difference, or they're already in a career and they want to make a swap. And I And I like the idea of kind of being more entrenched in a sector that may not be involved and then being that change, because I think we need it else everywhere. I kind of I kind of liken it to guerrilla warfare in a way. You know, it's sort <laughs> of working inside the machinery of the company and quietly changing people's mindsets and practices and convincing areas that don't normally think a lot about the environment uh, to think that way. So whether it's um, whether it's the human resources department, the accounting department whether it's the finance folks. I mean, there's some parts of companies that just don't have a lot of time in the day that they're dedicating to environmental issues. And so to really find ways to infiltrate the company and bring this, uh, these issues uh, in a tangible way to these different you know, fields and make it interesting to them and try and learn to speak their language and bring them the issues in such a way that they they feel attracted to do something about it. I think that's been really intellectually stimulating for me. And, and that's been kind of the key to our success in Punta Cana. Read your book, uh, Waking the Sleeping Giant, Unlocking the Hidden Power of Business to Save the Planet. I loved it. Um, and thank you. you kind of told a little bit about your life story and going into college and you were going to be a scientist. You like took science classes and then realized it really wasn't for you. Could you explain a little bit about what that was like and making the transition and what you ended up studying? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think early on when you're looking around at what, you know, environmentalists look like or what a environmental career would look like, the obvious choice is science because so many of the decisions that need to happen to protect ecosystems or species or habitats, uh, it comes down to the science. You need to have good data, good information, and you need to make decisions based on um, this decision tree based on science. Mm -hmm. But I realized pretty early on that that was not my strength and wasn't my passion. 
Uh, I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for scientists. I understand the scientific process and I believe in it. I love reading about science and the things that scientists discover, but I just determined pretty quickly that I didn't want to be doing that with my day to day, you know, and, I, and there's so many ways to do great science, but that just wasn't my thing. Um, but I wanted to be able to take science and use it either either to convince people that we needed to be doing more to protect the environment or to help make sound decisions in the best way we could protect the environment. So science has definitely been an important part of my background. I studied ecology, conservation, biology. I have a master's uh, in environmental management from Cornell. And I continue to read scientific papers and contribute, you know, as a co-author to, you know, journals and things like that. But, but really, you know, I think my view of science is that my role is that I can do a much better job of trying to interpret the information and share it with the public than really generating the actual data and science myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And we need people on both sides of the coin. And I like that you kind of recognize that uh, we needed something else. So instead of studying science, you took some time off and went down to Costa Rica and we're helping build right. the bridge. I really love this. I really love this story that you shared in the book about how what happened when you were building the bridge day one. Could you share a little bit what happened? Yeah. So uh, I went to uh, my first year of college uh, and it was a gigantic waste of money. I mean, <laughs> college is so expensive and even more so today. Uh, but in this, at that point, it was 1996, uh, and I wasted my freshman year and didn't do a great amount of uh, have a great amount of academic rigor. Uh, so I decided I was going to take a semester off or just leave school. And uh, thinking about nature at that point, you know, what does nature look like? You, you got to go to Costa Rica, right? Because Costa Rica's where nature is. <laughs> so I I got a uh, a. a a job as a volunteer uh, at the Monteverde Cloud Forest Reserve, and it was building trails and helping the sort of maintenance department put together these trails. And I sounded, it sounded so glorious, right? It sounded just this amazing opportunity to be in the forest and in the woods and communing with nature. And, uh, and really, it just turned out to be just such hard work. I mean, I have so much respect now for people that make trails especially in places like Costa Rica, where it rains a lot. There's like hills and small mountains and it's muddy and, and you know, and there's not a lot of vehicle access to some of these uh, protected areas. So it's really you're, you know, dragging bags of cement and rebar through the woods to build bridges. And that's exactly what I was doing the first day that I got to Monteverde was putting bags of sand and bags of cement over our shoulders uh, and then walking it as far as we could get into the forest until there was no more trail and we put it all down and we would go back and grab more uh, cement and more sand and and even rebar and then we drag it back to the site and we were going to be building a bridge mm -hmm. and the bridge was part of a new trail network uh, in the in the reserve and so that first day you know we were sitting there eating, you know, in Costa Rica, pinto gallo, which is uh, rice and beans kind of mashed together with their special Costa Rican sauce. And uh, the, I think these were actually even sandwiches of, of rice and beans, uh, <laughs> just a total carb sandwich. And yes. all of a sudden we're sitting there and I was miserable and, and sweaty and it was kind of like drizzling. Uh, and I was, I don't think I'd ever been that tired. 
And all of a sudden you hear all this rustling in the forest and it's just this crazy cacophony of sound as the trees are rustling. And this group of monkeys came up and just right above us as we were sitting there and, you know, for the, the Ticos, the Costa Rican guys I was working with, they, this was just like every day, you know, this was nothing important. And to me, I had never seen a monkey in the wild before. I mean, it was amazing. And I had this realization that there's so many ways to pro approach and make environmentalism uh, important to many people. And building trails is really an important part of it. It's giving you know people that don't normally get out into nature access to see monkeys in the wild. And so building the bridge to me became this like symbolic uh, idea of how can I contribute to the, the cause of protecting nature, not necessarily as a scientist, uh, and, and involve more people and, and have them be as fascinated as I was by this group of, of monkeys, uh, spider monkeys passing by. And that really left a, a huge impact on me. And when I went back to school, you know, my mom would be happy to, to say I actually finished college. Um, <laughs> she, we, I realized, you know, I wanted to study science. And so I kept, continued studying sort of all of the ologies, uh, you know, biology and, uh, you know, conservation biology. But there were so many other ways to approach environmental issues and so many other ways to be engaged. And that's, that's really kind of that, that learning moment I had. Yes. I love that. I firmly believe the Jacques Rousseau quote, you protect what you love and getting people out into nature is one of the best ways to do it. Right. You see it, you experience it, you fall in love a little bit, and then you want to do something about it to protect it and make sure it's there for a long time. So it definitely speaks to that. You seeing those monkeys out in the forest. Absolutely. <laughs> you continue to study some of the ologies, but you ended up studying Spanish lit. Is that because you always knew you wanted to work in a Spanish speaking country? Um, I don't know. I, th I guess I went to a, to a liberal arts college undergraduate uh, okay. and they give you a huge amount of flexibility in what you study. And uh, the professors in the you know Latin American and Spanish literature department were just great, and mm -hmm. um, I wanted to practice and learn Spanish. I had had some experience, you know, in, in Costa Rica and other parts of Central America, and uh, even in the Dominican Republic. So I knew that I wanted to perfect my you know Spanish and really be able to speak fluently, mm -hmm. and so that seemed like a good way to do it. And um, Spanish and Latin American literature is just amazing stuff <laughs> it's just so many good writers so many uh good poets so many good um you know amazing uh academics and so from you know it was just an opportunity to do something I, I didn't really imagine i would ever be a professor in spanish literature or anything like that but right. it was a great excuse to study spanish and really kind of perfect my my writing and speaking and you know comprehension absolutely i really like that you have a totally different degree. It's it's not even like business administration. It's not environmental science. It's Spanish, a language. And then you've applied this to your sustainability mission and dream. I think that's really fascinating. Did you have any issues getting jobs or applying to your grad school program with a degree in Spanish? No, I think I had some good field experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I had... Uh, worked for a Cornell professor in Punta Cana uh, and helped set up some of his research programs uh, and had a really good relationship with a professor. And I think once, you know, I decided I want to go back to school, it wasn't like I had no science background, like I was just, you know, 
going to go straight from, you know, roller skating to science or something. Like I really did have some experience and I had done internships and I had worked for nonprofits. And so I had some background uh, in, in science. Uh, and um, I think that helped me. And then, you know, I think they kind of saw, you know, potential in the, the sort of mission that I was crafting was that I was going to be involved in environmental work, but with a, with a different sort of perspective and take on it. And this program I did at the Center for the Environment of Cornell was really diverse. So we studied environmental law, we studied engineering, I studied agroforestry, uh, GPS mapping and uh, GIS. And, uh, you know, it was very, it was very diverse set of skills that we left with. So I think it's been, it was kind of the perfect fit for what I've turned up to do. Um, and really, a lot of it was just learning how to learn, you know, part of the, the idea of being in this sustainability space is that it's constantly changing. There's now more and more technology being involved. Um, and I watch, you know, how our the marine scientists that work for us and that we collaborate with, the tools that they're using nowadays didn't exist um, or weren't as accessible as they are now. You know, now they're mapping with drones and doing, uh, you know, looking at the quality of coral reefs using, you know, uh, planes that are outfitted with LIDAR and, uh, you know, all kinds of underwater mapping techniques and visualization of reefs and rugosity. And these are things I think that were much harder to do back in the day with technology. And now it's getting more and more accessible. So the idea of the environmental management uh, masters that I got was much more about learning how to learn and being open and fluid to adapt to new technologies and new ideas and not so fixed on sort of a rigid set of, uh, of tools and skill sets. I like that. Learning how to learn. Yeah, because things are constantly changing and being able to adapt to it. It's important. That makes total sense. Yeah, and I th as a scientist, you must know, I mean, the, the things you have access to nowadays, you know, even relatively inexpensively, um, you know, that just it wasn't as easy to get a hold of back in the day. And the, the, the speed at which we can collaborate now with partners around the world and the things we can learn from what other people are doing, I think it's, it's opened up many realms for, for decision making. And I think that's an incredibly important and powerful tools, but we have to be open to, to using these tools. You know, if you have uh, decision makers and managers and in my case, uh, you know, executives in a private company, that aren't willing to consider new ways of processing information and new ways of considering uh, decision-making, then you know, those tools are relatively useless. So um, I think it's been super important for me to just keep an open mind and be willing to learn about things that, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about, you know, as, as recently as a few years ago. Yes. You have a quote in your book that sustainability encompasses environmental, social, and economic success. Could you tell me a little bit about where you work and what the Punta Cana Foundation is and the mission? So Punta Cana is uh, the uh, region in the eastern part of the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic is an island in the Caribbean. It shares uh, an island with Haiti. Um, it is relatively close to the United States, uh, a couple hours away to Miami, you know, a couple more to uh, New York. And Punta Cana has grown as an incredibly important tourism destination uh, in the region. That was recently, before the pandemic, 
uh, as 2019, we had 4 million arriving uh, tourists come through the Punta Cana International Airport a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a huge number of people. And much of the traffic of tourists that come to the region uh, were coming in in touch and contact with our company. Uh, Our company is Grupo Punta Cana. We own and operate uh, the Punta Cana International Airport. It was one of the first privately owned international airports in the world. And we have since grown into uh, a larger resort community that is uh, made up of three hotel properties, over 2,000 private residences uh, of all different sizes and and types um, from everything from sort of a middle-income uh, residential development for people that live in Punta Cana, all the way to much higher end, you know, extremely expensive sort of plantations for uh, higher wealth individuals. So we have this kind of large array of residential developments. And because of the way our company has developed over time, and we've been around for 51 years, much of the infrastructure that we rely on for our resort Uh, was developed privately. So we have our own electric company, our own water distribution company, uh, water treatment facility. We have a security company. Uh, We have um, a laundry, an industrial laundry facility. Uh, And then, as I mentioned, the resorts and hospitality areas and and private residences and real estate. So that's the kind of landscape of our company. We're basically uh, more or less a small city, without a government, um, it's a sort of a private city in a way. And uh, I oversee all of our sustainability initiatives. And we do that both on the corporate side, so that is permitting, licensing, environmental quality control, problem solving for major environmental issues. And then I also run our foundation. And our foundation functions as an extension of the resort. It is a separate nonprofit. It has its own board of directors. But much of our action, much of many of our initiatives and the work that we're doing takes place in and around the resort, uh, using the resort as a laboratory for innovation, experimentation, uh, and new ideas and solving sustainability challenges and then applying those in like a real life situation. So we're applying those on the ground in, in Grupo Punta Cana. That's essentially what the layout looks like. Um, and the unique history of Punta Cana is, you know, the pioneer in tourism and, and pioneer in the Eastern DR uh, is that they've always had this idea of sustainability embedded in the DNA of the company, even before the term sustainability even existed. I mean, but people, you know, it came around in 92 or so, we started talking about sustainable development and then later sustainability. But this company had a lot of really cool ideas that they were implementing long before it became, you know, a trend or long before it even became a field, uh, a professional field. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's made it a really unique sort of experiment in, in some of these ideas of implementing uh, sustainable development. Yes. And two of them, as you were talking about this, that popped into my head from your book was one, they set aside quite a large chunk of land as a do not touch preserve that's still on property today. And then the other one is uh, you guys actually were one of the first ones to do coral restoration. 
So I definitely want to chat a little bit about that today. Um, Yeah, let's chat about your coral restoration. So (laughs) I like how you segued into it was how, how parrotfish contribute to the white sand beaches. You want to tell that story? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so often in tourism, you know, if, if we're just a group of environmentalists talking amongst ourselves or scientists talking amongst ourselves, you know, the relationship to a coral reef and coastal development like resorts and white sand beach hotels and uh, coastal development is really, really obvious. But for 99% of the people that come to the Caribbean and come to destinations that have coral reefs and white sand beaches, there is absolutely no correlation. They don't know that there is this, you know, inherent relationship between the two. And when I started in uh, Punta Cana in, in 2005, I, I had no special knowledge of coral reefs. I was a scuba diver. I had done some background work um, and I knew that there were these incredible habitats and these incredible ecosystems. Uh, and I knew I liked to visit them, uh, but I didn't know, you know, as much detail as I've learned over the years from from being around coral reefs and, and learning what it takes to protect them. And one of the things that really grabbed my attention was uh, the importance of herbivorous fish to a coral reef. And that's been validated recently with all kinds of you know scientific stir- surveys and the trends and tendencies of coral reefs in the Caribbean study. That was kind of this long-term look at all the research done around the Caribbean. It concluded, among other things, that you know, herbivorous fish like parrotfish are just critically important to the health of coral reefs. So that story is really important to hotels, and yet they're incredibly ignorant of it. <laughs> so um, I, you, one of my jobs has been to learn what exactly do these parrotfish and these other herbivorous fish contribute to the health of coral reefs, and how is that relevant to hotels and the you know coastal development? and how to convince them that this is an important issue. Um, so, you know, parrotfish, they help clean the reef. And if your listeners are scientists, they know more than I do, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> they are these beautiful, colorful, very bizarre species uh, that change sexes. And they have this whole sort of super leader structure where they have sort of, a, they all sort of follow a super leader. So scientifically and from an evolutionary standpoint, they're really cool. Uh, they also are beautiful because they're very colorful. So a lot of tourists, when they go snorkeling or scuba diving, you want to see colorful fish. Uh, and parrotfish are among some of these beautiful, colorful fish on the reef. Um, they also clean the reef by eating algae, and that is their, their preferred food. Uh, so they are keeping the cover of algae down uh, so it doesn't overgrow the, the corals. And they also, when they are eating algae, they tend to chew up a little rock, um, sort of like a cow grazing when it's eating grass. It'll also chew up a little rocks or dirt or whatever else and then digest it out. In the case of parrotfish, they they have these parrot-like beaks and they grind on the rock in order to, to chew up the uh, algae. Uh, and then uh, their uh, excrement is actually some of the white sand beaches uh, that that we're so lucky to have in the Caribbean. So their poop is literally turned into white sand. Right. <laughs> so if that's not enough reasons to love the parrotfish, then then you know I don't know how you could convince anybody because they're they're beautiful, they're fascinating, 
they're functionally important and they also are just these factories of this incredibly valuable resource which is white sand so that's a story we've been trying to tell in the dominican republic um, and we're trying to tell it to the tourism industry and it's it's been fairly successful um, a few years ago uh, after a number of campaigns that a, groups of environmental organizations, including ours, had been promoting and talking to politicians and talking to the hotel and trade associations, managed to get one of the first parrotfish bans implemented in the Caribbean, a two-year ban on fishing parrotfish. And then mm. uh, that expired and was extended and then recently uh, was uh, was limited by the fisheries institutions of the government. And there was such public outcry uh, that it was re-implemented literally just last week. So now we have a two-year full ban on commercialization of parrotfish in the Dominican Republic, which is totally, uh, you know, astounding. You know, there's so many places, even still in the Caribbean, that have no idea of the importance of these species. And now we have a ban on them in the Dominican Republic. And, and we've been fortunate to be sort of a big part of that idea. And then that all ties in uh, to, to the, the original question of coral restoration and, and how yeah. we've, you know, kind of really approached trying to protect and then restore parts of the degraded reef near our property. Yes. So before we kind of get into your restoration efforts, I want to back up. I really like that not just parrotfish were banned, but there was such a public support. I think that speaks a lot to the education that was happening and people realizing the impacts and really uh, embracing that. I think that's probably the, one of the biggest wins that it was so publicly supported. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was, you know, it's a contentious issue because you do have, you know, 10,000 or so fishermen in the Dominican Republic. And as many of the commercially viable species have been overfished over the years, you know, your groupers and your snappers and um, some of the pelagics are still okay, you know, in terms of mahi-mahi and things like that. But they have gradually what they call fish down the food web. So, you know, parrotfish was not an attractive species for consumption uh, previously, you know, as recently as 15 years ago. And now it's being more heavily fished for human consumption because these other species don't exist. Uh, and so the points we've tried to make is, one, it's incredibly important for tourism. Two, it's incredibly important for tourists, you know, the people that want to visit the reef and, and snorkel and scuba dive. Uh, and also points to a larger concern, which is that we have allowed all these other species of fish to be completely decimated to the point where now we're fishing things which previously weren't economically valuable. So let's evaluate the way we're managing the entire resource. So a parrot fish van is fantastic, but let's also look at no-take zones for other species. Let's look at managing other species. Let's look at alternatives for fisher families and what they could be doing uh, potentially instead of overfishing the reef. Uh, let's look at uh, the government's capacity to implement some of these laws and, and, you know, these bans and, you know, think a little more holistically than just, okay, let's protect this one species. Because at the end of the day, you want to have, you know, a healthy reef with, you know, crabs and lobsters and sharks and rays and uh, herbivorous fish and small, beautiful, colorful fish that, we maybe don't even know what their function is yet um, and have, you know, a great diversity of corals as well. Absolutely. 
So has there been laws and legislation to protect the other species that are fished? There are Caribbean-wide bans seasonally on certain species. So right now uh, we are in the conch and crab ban season that just started last week. Uh, And before that, there was uh, lobster and a few other species. Um, there are, there's a fishery in the Dominican Republic and other parts of the Caribbean of um, glass eels, which are the baby eels um, that come up into freshwater rivers from the, from the sea. Uh, and that is now managed uh, seasonally. Um, lobster, yeah, so there's a few species, um, but this one for parrotfish is the first one that's been, um, I think, of a species that's not necessarily done uh, Caribbean-wide. Okay. So it's a big first. Yeah, it's a big first. It's a big experiment. We'll see how well it works. You know, the first round, it worked well in some places and not well in others, uh, in, you know, parts of the country. Um, so we'll see what we've learned through the first experience. Uh, and I think people recognize now that, you know, there needs to be kind of a multi-pronged strategy. It's not just banning one thing, but it's finding solutions for some of the other root problems, too, at the same time. Right. Which leads us fairly neatly to your coral restoration efforts. So could you explain a little bit about your initial efforts with coral restoration and how you were able to integrate some of the fishing community in it? So coral restoration, um, as far as I know, has been around for 15 or 20 20 years or so. Uh, And essentially, Mm -hmm. in the early days, uh, it was an extension of um, aquarium production of corals and basically recognizing that corals were disappearing in the wild and that we could cultivate them and put them back onto reefs. Uh, and it was the, some of the early innovations were really around staghorn corals, the, uh, the cropperids mm-hmm. uh, and ways that we could grow them in underwater nurseries and metal frames and PVC pipes and on rope, uh, rope structures. Uh, and then as those corals, which were grown in kind of ideal conditions, ideal lighting, ideal water quality, very few predators, then could they would grow faster and then we could transplant those corals back onto the reef. And we mm-hmm. became aware of this uh, at all in 2004, uh, an international organization called Counterpart International had begun work with a uh, scientist, uh, Dr. Austin Bowden Kirby, who's one of the sort of early pioneers in uh, restoration, and he showed up in the Dominican Republic uh, and he managed through Counterpart International to get a meeting with the president at the time. Uh, and the president convened a bunch of private sector and, and uh, not-for-profit organizations uh, and said, you know, here's what's this, this is a big idea. What do you guys think of this? Is anyone willing to take a shot doing it? It's a pretty new idea and nobody in the DR was doing it at that point. And Punta Cana, Grupo Punta Cana was one of the first organizations to, to put their hand up and said, we'll put some money behind this uh, and try it out uh, on the reef in our area. Uh, at that point, we knew uh, from different studies we had done that the reef in uh, Punta Cana was in, was in pretty bad shape, uh, as many of the reefs in the Dominican Republic and in the Caribbean are, and that it needed some help. Um, and the prevailing wisdom at the time was basically just to monitor coral reefs and watch their decline. And this sounded something mm-hmm. very different, something very attractive, particularly to the private sector, was the idea that you could do something about, you know, degraded coral habitats. You know, if you had a deforested area, you could help, trans- you could help 
reforest it and the same with corals. If you had a degraded coral reef, you could help try and uh, repopulate it with corals. And so that's how our company got involved. And in 2005, we started a couple of frames. We had a nice site called the aquarium where we put the frames, uh, we deployed them. Uh, and we had great success growing corals in the nurseries. Uh, and very quickly, as we started doing the outplanting of the corals and putting them back on the reef, we realized that we needed more science and more help to, to really determine was the project working? You know, were we having survival of the corals on the reef? Was uh, the, the sites we were selecting the correct sites? Should the depth be deeper or more shallow? Should there be more light or less light? Should we be planting them in areas where there still were some of these species of staghorn corals or in areas where there were no corals? And that's when we got, uh, in, we got involved and started collaborating with the University of Miami Rosenstiel School of Marine Atmospheric Science. And they were contracted to do a study in the Caribbean of all the practitioners of coral restoration, which at that time I think was, was not more than 10 or so of us, uh, and all over the Caribbean and even some in Central America. And they came back and said, you know, the Punta Cana site is some of the greatest uh, density of corals in a nursery in the region. Um, so you guys are doing something right, even if you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so we, we partnered with them and we really started advancing the science of um, growing corals in nurseries, outplanting them successfully on the reefs and monitoring how that went over time. And then uh, at that point in 2005, uh, Cropper was one of the few species of corals that was on the endangered species list. Um, that has since grown to more species of corals, unfortunately, that are on the um, endangered species list. And so we have begun exploring new ways to grow corals that will allow us to incorporate more species and new techniques of growing coral that allow us to scale up our operations and scale up the amount of coral we can put back on the reef. And so that's where our, our work is now. So we are in the process of building out a land-based nursery that'll be multi-coral species um, and continuing the work of the coral nursery that we have had uh, underwater for, for now almost 17 years, close to 17 years. Amazing. What are some of the new species that you're going to be building out? The idea is to begin working with some of the massives, you know, the brain corals and things like that, mm -hmm. because um, mm -hmm. those tend to be slower growing and don't grow as well in, in, in water nurseries. And so there's some new techniques um, to called micro fragmentation, where you cut the corals into very small pieces and, um, and encourage them to grow uh, faster. And there's been some experience in Florida and a few other nurseries where they've achieved uh, incredibly fast growth rates of these uh, massive corals. So we're trying to replicate some of the success they've had in, in other places um, and, and really building out our, our nurseries and, uh, and continuing the, the research about what works and doesn't what, what doesn't work um, and, and really trying to uh, push the ball along as we also confront many of the other challenges. And, and that includes involving the local community in this work, improving water quality, minimizing the impact of divers and you know, boaters on the <laughs> reef, um, but the keeping this sort of gene bank of corals alive, I think is incredibly important to ultimately bringing the, the reef back to health. 
Absolutely. Now, how does the local community help with coral restoration? We learned pretty early on that one of the challenges we have in Punta Cana, and it seems like every coral reef around the world has a different set of problems. They may overlap, but uh, whether it's invasive species coming in of new new fish or new urchins or, or whatever new species might come in, um, there's disease outbreaks that impact corals, there's storm events, there's now uh, increasing water temperature, um, the sedimentation and, and pollution from land-based sources. Uh, but one that just kept coming up for us and, and was documented uh, pretty thoroughly by different groups that had come through was overfishing. Our reefs were fairly devoid of, uh, of fish and species like the, the our famous parrotfish. We knew that we had to reduce fishing pressures on the reef. And one way that it occurred to us to do that was to involve the local fishermen and their families in different conservation and tourism activities, uh, as opposed to just chasing them around with patrol boats and trying to regulate them. Um, it, it just seemed much, much more efficient and, and much more, um, is a much more effective way to, to engage them. And so we started out with and much more neighborly. And much more neighborly, absolutely, yeah. And I, I think from a practical standpoint, you know, you know, as a tourism business, we're not very good at patrolling and you know, and uh, arm arm service and things like that. That's just not what we do. So um, it made a lot more sense to try and provide new types of jobs for for these folks, uh, including the families. And that's what we started with just a group of three fishermen that we, uh, through a, a project that we had with the Inter-American Development Bank, we uh, certified them as scuba divers and then we trained them to do coral restoration work and then we just hired them. Uh, and that built up some confidence. And so then uh, as we continue to get kind of different projects started, we trained them as boat captains and then we trained them uh, to work in the scuba industry. And then uh, we began engaging their families to help us deal with some of the lionfish uh, invasions and invasive species that, that showed up in the Caribbean about a decade ago. And we had uh, fishermen's wives making artisanal stuffed lionfish to sell as souvenirs um, and, and generating. I love that story so much that like, I mean, the natural thing is to fish them off the reef because they're the problem, right? But then it wasn't consistent enough and the restaurants weren't happy with that. And so you came up with this other solution of making these stuffed souvenirs that the wives get to make and then put the needles into the husbands to say, go get me more. I thought that story was fantastic. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was really just, you know, kind of hubris. I mean, we thought, oh, it's so obvious. We just, we have restaurants, we have fishermen, we convince the fishermen to capture this invasive species of lionfish, which we don't want in the water. We convince the chefs to cook it and serve it. And bingo, we've got the solution. Uh, but as in the case of most sustainability projects, it's usually more complicated than that. <laughs> so um, we found right. that the fishermen weren't very consistent in producing the lionfish. The chefs, you know, the sizes weren't right or they didn't like it or some of them just gave up and thought it was too too annoying. Um, and that's when we came across uh, in, in Cuba, a, a group that was turning lionfish into these stuffed souvenirs. So sort of like when you go to the Amazon, you can buy a stuffed piranha. We were making stuffed lionfish that people could buy. Uh, and then it turned out to be a much better solution because the, the wives were making, you know, 
40 to $70 per lion, stuffed lionfish. And so it was a really good incentive to go, you know, put the needle on their husbands to catch more lionfish. And it turned out to be a lot better uh, stress point than, than having chefs do the, the pressure. <laughs> I had no idea that selling stuffed fish was a thing until I read that. I thought it was very funny. I, th- I think, and I like that it worked I think out. I own like the first five that they ever produced. You know, I was like the number one stuffed lionfish consumer to get the whole thing started. But then we convinced our friends and then people locally and then tourists. And then it, it kind of, it turned into a much bigger thing, but, but yeah, it, it just was a, a fun take on it. Um, and I think it, and it worked to a certain degree. Yes. I like that. I mean, you guys are just so, it seems like you're, you take all the challenges and you are just trying different things to see what sticks and what works. And it's, it seems like a very fluid from hindsight. I'm sure it wasn't at the time, but just a very fluid way of problem solving and correcting and uh, figuring out what works. So I think that's really interesting. And um, another story that really highlighted that was your sargassum story. So I had heard in the news that sargassum was becoming more and more of an issue in the Caribbean. We've seen more here in Florida, but uh, significantly more down where you guys are. Would you share a little bit about what the sargassum was like and some of the problem solving that you had to do to combat that situation? Yeah, and, and so many of the challenges that we've taken on in, in Grupo Fontacana and in the Dominican Republic are recurring, right? So we find a solution and then we're right. constantly evolving the solutions and uh, applying them in new ways. Uh, and seaweed, uh, the sargassum seaweed has really been a, a problem along those lines. We have been getting, you know, huge influxes of uh, sargassum seaweed uh, since about 2011. And mm-hmm. sargassum is a floating habitat. It's a floating seaweed, uh, mostly known to occur in the sargassum sea. And for some reason or another, beginning in 2011, it started showing up in the Caribbean and Mexico and in huge, huge quantities in places where we hadn't previously seen it. So now it's showing up in, you know, coastal communities in the Caribbean and beaches and uh, marinas and, and areas where, you know, traditionally really hadn't seen sargassum before. Uh, so we uh, began piloting some, uh, some techniques to try and uh, intercept the sargassum before it got to the beach uh, offshore using floating barriers. Uh, and so we built some in our maintenance shop at the resort and we had built these kind of, you know, uh, PVC floating barriers that could, you know, retain the sargassum and then offshore and then the, the currents would sort of take it farther down the coast. So anything you put in the ocean needs maintenance and needs to be cared for and looked after. Uh, And so we were hiring, you know, our staff or day laborers to go and check out the barriers and maintain them. And they they just, it takes a certain skill set to do work in the ocean, as you know. So uh, we discovered that the fishermen were actually a really good, uh, had a really good skill set to deal with, you know, these barriers. Uh, And we began approaching them and said, well, can you maintain them? And then, then it moved into, can you help deploy them? And uh, and set up the anchor mm-hmm. systems for these barriers, and then uh, turned into, can you build them yourselves? And so we started contracting the fishermen to actually build the barriers that we had designed. Uh, and now it's been an ongoing relationship for close to seven years where the fishermen uh, and former fishermen now 
have been uh, paid to maintain the barriers, to deploy them, to change them, to build them, uh, to innovate and come up with new types of barriers. Uh, we now have a, a new type of uh, small scale collection system with sort of a netting on the side of a boat. Um, it's almost like a little bit like a shrimp trawler, but a very small scale uh, where the fishermen can collect the seaweed and then you know, help us clean near, near shore, near the beaches. So they've become an incredibly important part of our management of the sargassum, sea, sargassum seaweed problem. Right, that makes sense. And yeah, you know, a little bit of seaweed's expected on the beaches, but it sounds like the massive quantities that are washing up is more than just a little bit. And if you're having to wade through waist deep seaweed to get to the ocean and then swim in even thicker seaweed, then it's not really appealing for people that are looking for their crystal clear water beach vacation. No, it's not what they signed up for. Um, and, you know, it does <laughs> a lot of damage to the image of the place, of the region. And, um, you know, and it's, a, it's a very expensive problem to manage when it hits the beach because then you have to have machinery or specialized beach cleaning equipment pick up the seaweed. So you're, you know, you have machinery on the beach, which is compacting the sand and even picking up some of the sand. And then you have unhappy guests because nobody comes to the Caribbean to watch machinery go in front of them all day. Well, they should just be staring at the ocean. Um, and then, you know, the, obviously the having to climb over, you know, mounds of seaweed is very problematic. So uh, we've made it a big priority to try and intercept it offshore with as minimal environmental impact as we possibly can, involve the local community in the, in the solution. Uh, and more importantly, and I think this is one of the main things we've really emphasized from Grupo Punta Cana and our Grupo Punta Cana Foundation is sharing what we've learned. Um, you know, our mm -hmm. barriers, we never patented them. You know, we, there was never any intention of making this a, the secret sauce or anything like that. Like if other people can do what we're doing and learn from it and improve on it and, and help their business, that's fantastic. So uh, I think the idea of sharing what we've learned has been an important part of our of our model. Yes, we're all fighting the same fight, yeah. essentially. Right. So it's I love that. You have so many projects in this book, um, and we definitely don't have time to cover even half of them. What's your what was one of your favorite projects to work on? One of the things that we did that I, is my really one of my pet and favorite projects, um, we worked on the conservation of the Ridgeway's hawk. Uh, Ridgeway's hawk is an endangered mm. hawk species that's found only in on the island of Hispaniola. It's in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, and it had been basically had disappeared throughout the island, except for in one last site uh, in the national park known as Los Aitises. And our CEO, Frank Ranieri, uh, there was a presentation that was sort of circulating around. That was the way we used to do it back in the day before Facebook. You know, you had a, some PowerPoint about the, about the situation that the hawk was going through and all the threats, and then it would kind of get circulated around by email. And he came across this uh, presentation, um, and, and the hawk had been persecuted by humans to you know, protect their, their chicken populations uh, and had largely disappeared. And so my CEO wrote to me and said, why don't we just introduce a couple in Punta Cana? Nobody's going to shoot them here. We all have tourism jobs. Um, and so we started this uh, initiative over a decade ago, uh, and we were working with the Peregrine Fund, which is an international organization that is dedicated to protecting birds of prey and raptors. Uh, and we approached them and said, hey, we, you know, is there any interest 
in bringing Ridgeway's hawks to our property and using it as sort of a, a secondary uh, breeding site. Uh, and that was exactly what they were looking to do because if something happened to that one remaining population of Lycitesis, then the bird could completely disappear, a disease or a storm or something. So we started reintroducing them into Punta Cana. Uh, and by the third year, we had birds reproducing in Punta Cana. Uh, and then we increased the number of uh, individuals reintroduced. And then the uh, pairs that formed here increased. And today, now we have over 140 birds here. Uh, and when the project started, there was only about 300 total birds left. So we have 140 or so uh, Ridgeway's hawks here. This last breeding season, we had over 20 pairs and 24 hawks fledged, meaning they left the nest. Uh, and our resort has become sort of a hawk refuge. You know, and it's just not what you think about when you think of beach tourism, you know, <laughs> protecting endangered hawk species. Um, but they've become a, a very common site on our resort around the hotels, around private residences, near our foundation, in the forest, near the golf courses. Uh, and it's just, it's been kind of a rallying cry for our community. The local school has adopted the Hawks as their mascot for their sports team. Um, we have, you know, the, the electric company has worked with us to retrofit many of the electric power lines so they're safe for the Hawks. So they've become huge supporters. Um, we've worked with local communities to educate them because the Hawks have now, they're so abundant in our property, they spread out to nearby resorts and communities. So they're more frequently showing up in other places. So it's really become this incredible conservation project um, directly tied in to a beach resort. And so I, I just love it because, you know, we're having a big impact. Uh, we're using our resort in a unique way. And you know, an, an incredibly important conservation initiative. And, and it hasn't been anything we did for, you know, for the publicity or anything like that. It was really uh, our CEO just said, you know, we couldn't do any harm trying this. <laughs> so we might as well try and help. And it's turned out to be uh, an incredibly potent example of something the private sector can do to help conservation goals. That's fantastic. I love that story. I also love the idea of just hawks circling everything above above all the resorts and uh, hotels. My wife is not a, uh, a naturalist by any stretch, um, and she can now identify the Ridgeway's hawks call. She knows where many of the nests are and where their sites are. Uh, she can, you know, tell you when she saw one or saw a pair, and now, you know, she knows the general range of them. And I think that has occurred you know, throughout our resort, you know, people that not necessarily big birders, no life list of bird species, you know, not people with binoculars or anything like that. They're just fans of this bird because they know a little bit about its story and how we've helped bring it back. And now it's just part of our community. And it's just a really cool story. But it's such a cool story. I love it. So one of my new questions to ask in the podcast and really enjoying it is if you were to get unlimited funding what would you want to work on or what project would you do wow and i can only do one project <laughs> unlimited funding sounds super appetizing <laughs> all right so i'll say like three projects because i feel like you, i feel like if we gave everybody enough time we could probably come up with a hundred right, okay. right? So no more than okay. three, but what would you want to use funding for? Well, one, one thing I think, you know what, 
working in the environmental field, and specifically from the private sector perspective, where um, there is an inherent realization that we have limited resources. You know, private sector maybe has more resources than other places, but it has to be spread around and you have to be really thoughtful about how you utilize the resources you do have. Um, so you want to be really strategic. So when I think about one of the major challenges that the Dominican Republic faces and many you know, countries in Latin America face, it's the, managed, it's the issue of waste, of garbage. Uh, and mm-hmm. a really shortcut way to deal with garbage is to attack organic garbage. So take food waste and, um, you know, food prep waste and green area waste and, you know, any other types of green waste that you can generate and transforming it into useful products is a really good way to, to attack the, the problem of solid waste. When you get remove and utilize organic waste, what's left is much easier to recycle or to transform into something else. When it's all just mixed together, then it's garbage. So, my first big initiative would be some kind of large-scale project to transform organic food waste into something super productive, whether it's energy or biogas or compost. Any one of those would work um, if that was possible. I think scaling up of restoration of coral reefs would be incredibly important, and that's restoration and all the management needed to protect those those ecosystems, particularly in countries like the DR, where so much of our economy is based on tourism. Uh, so, so much of that is um, resources that we need uh, to communicate with people, to find new technologies, scale up restoration work, and then also to, to implement laws and really, really follow up on enforcement in ways that's not currently happening. So I think th- those would probably use up a good amount of my unlimited resources. <laughs> those, are, those are big problems right there. Yeah. Uh, those are great. Those are great projects. Actually, you kind of brought up a point that I want to chat with you a little bit about. So the foundation, the private sector of Punta Cana, like supports the foundation, but it, it kind of works in reciprocity a little bit too. Could you kind of explain a little bit how they work together? So our parent company is Grupo Punta Cana and um, similar to the United States, there are certain benefits to taking money that would typically go towards uh, taxes, a certain amount is allowable, uh, and putting it in a not-for-profit activities. Um, so, you know, if you're going to pay $100 to the government, I think it's 10% can then be put into not-for-profit uh, and then, you know, has to follow some mission and report, you know, whatever benefit was generated from that not-for-profit. Uh, so our company, uh, contributes a significant amount of resources per year to our foundation. And then the foundation uses that as leverage, right? So um, our, you know, we've got this kind of chunk of money that we get every year that we don't have to go and fundraise for. As long as the company is successful, we have that money. And then we use that um, to fundraise with other donors or, uh, or uh private funds, but also now more increasingly with international donors, uh, multilaterals, and, you know, that are becoming increasingly interested in how to leverage this private sector uh, potential to solve some of these major sustainability issues. So um, we've worked with the Inter-American Development Bank, with GIZ in Germany, and uh, the the UN Development Program, and and other funders, to basically utilize what the company's giving and expand and scale it up. 
And so many of the challenges that we take on are of direct benefit for the company. So uh, waste management is a major issue uh, in Punta Cana and the Dominican Republic. So we've been able to get some of these uh, international donor funds to try and take on some of these projects. And then we use Punta Cana as this, you know, group of Punta Cana as this laboratory to implement the, the program. So we set up a separation and recycling facility uh, on property in the in, in Grupo Punta Cana. Uh, we've set up a large-scale composting operation in Punta Cana. And then um, once we've implemented those solutions and learned from them, then we share those uh, locally and with, amongst other hotels and other businesses in the country with the idea that this learning that's happening in the private sector doesn't have to be just contained within our company, that we can really share this information much more widely. I love that. I like that there's just this reciprocal understanding and relationship and like respect between it. It's not just the the private sector writing a check for the nonprofit and they're just like, well, I did a good thing, right? But the nonprofit is also, the foundation's also able to kind of give back and you really are able to highlight that. And I think that's something that people don't totally realize um, that are outside of the more conservation realm is that nonprofits do provide such a wonderful service for whatever they're doing. Um, and your, your relationship highlights that well. Yeah, and I think so much of it, you know, this private sector mentality is also, you know, it's great to do good, but let's figure out how to do it so it can be good for business too, right? So it's not just, um, right. you know, thinking about, um, you know, contributing to some, a problem that society has and then just sort of closing your eyes and forgetting about it because it's not really relevant to your business. And in, in our case, we're really taking on challenges that are directly relevant to the tourism economy, to our company or to our region. Uh, and, and that makes it an even more powerful argument, you know, you, that it's right. economically sustainable, but it's also producing benefit and value for uh, these, these issues that we're confronting. Right. Makes total sense. So what's one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And I know you've spent some time in the forest and in the water, and this could be just like a really fun day out. I mean, I feel like your pivotal monkey story is an excellent one. Or it could be, you know, things happened in the field and at the time it was legit and, and now it makes a really great story. So we have been doing uh, composting uh, on a large scale for for quite a few years. Uh, and our... Um, <laughs> our project is based on a type of composting called worm composting. So we use uh, worms to process food waste and uh, animal manure and green waste and turn it into high value compost. And in the early days, uh, we were basically just giving food directly to worms and then processing and harvesting that food, that, that compost that came out of it, the, the worm compost. And then uh, we were supplying it to our golf courses to replace some of the synthetic products that they were using at the time. And uh, we've gotten considerably more um, sophisticated now in how we do it and our processes to have our compost be as uniform and as high quality as possible. That time we were still sort of experimenting. And uh, I remember I convinced our superintendent, uh, Julio, to accept some of our beautiful brown compost and he willingly uh, put some of this on his golf course. Uh, and a week or so later, he came back and gave us back all of our compost. And I, you know, I couldn't figure it out. I said, what happened, Julio? You know, what, why are you, you know, what's wrong? You don't like the product. 
and he said, I have eggplants on my fairway. And apparently <laughs> the compost, we hadn't been, you know, heating it up and we hadn't been processing it before it ended up with the worms. And so the worms would eat whatever seeds were in the food waste and then, you know, poop it out. And then those seeds were still viable. So when he was putting our compost all over his beautiful fairway, some of the plants actually sprouted. And so he had fairway, <laughs> he had eggplants sprout on his, on his fairway. We've since figured that out. So now we have a pre-composting process, an aerobic process that eliminates all the seeds and any other problems we have. So Julio is back on board with us, but he was not happy at all at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that story cracks me up. The idea, I mean, golf course, manicuring golf courses is an art in and of itself, an art and a science in and of itself. And the idea of this like perfectly manicured golf course with eggplants growing on it just is very funny <laughs> yeah funny to me uh it wasn't as funny to, to my my friend julio but he's si since come around i'm sure not i'm sure he was not happy when he handed everything back to you <laughs> so we chatted a little bit about this before we started recording but i like to leave the audience at the end of each episode with a conservation ask to take forth and bring into the world what would you like the audience to take away from your episode well, I think um, one thing that's so important is for people, um, the general public that, you know, maybe are not necessarily environmentalists or have some inkling to environmentalism or social issues to realize how much power they have uh, as consumers, as travelers, as, you know, as citizens, you have more power than you're aware of. Um, so we have, um, for in the example of tourism, I've come to understand how important the traveler's opinion is and the the platforms they have to express themselves have continually expanded so now uh, in our hotels for example we have three hotel properties there is someone assigned to read TripAdvisor reviews for our hotels and respond individually to each uh, each review, what, positive or negative, you know, thanking people for their positive review or responding to questions or criticisms in the negative reviews, you would be surprised how in tune to public response hotels and businesses in general have had to become because the public now has so much more access uh, to express themselves and more, and more means to do so. So my recommendation would be for travelers particularly, but consumers in general, to just be curious, ask questions, challenge businesses, uh, hold their feet to the fire on their claims, uh, and really you know, push them to be better. And you'd be shocked how powerful that can be because companies are very sensitive to it and, and increasingly every day more. Uh, and I, just a quick example, I know there's, there's lots of products out there you know, these, there's everybody's against plastic now. And so there's a lot of these products that are claiming to be compostable, um, that, you know, made from mm -hmm. corn or avocados or any kind of bio mass material. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they claim to be compostable and technically they are, but many of them have to get to a, uh, high temperature compost facility in order to be compostable. So meaning they have to get over 160 degrees Fahrenheit in order to compost. Well, that's not possible right. in most places. Right. So 
Right. The more you question these companies about it and you want to know how compostable are you, what are the conditions you need to be compostable? And this is just one example, but companies are sensitive to it and they, and they often respond to it if they get enough of it. So if you're going to travel, if you're going to a hotel, ask them lots of questions and be persistent and dig a little deeper and ask them where their waste goes and how they manage it. And do they recycle or do they just recycle plastic? Which materials do you recycle? You know, and, and make the companies think about it because the more people that do, the more sensitive they become to it and more likely they will change their habits and change the way they're, they're, they're managing different environmental and social issues. So I think my take home message is you are far more powerful than you realize and take advantage of that and hold companies to it and make them improve their, their operations. So good. I love that. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your work, what is the best place to do so? So I'm pretty active on Instagram at J Keel, K H E E L. Um, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and I have a website, jakekeel.com as well. So you can find me on all of those platforms. And I would be honored and thrilled if you would pick up a copy of my book, Waking the Sleeping Giant, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Awesome. And I highly recommend it to listeners. It was, it was great. And I'll put a link to everything we chatted about and all of Jake's links in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Jake, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great time. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.